Welcome to episode number 62 of the Truth and Dare podcast. Today, we are sitting down with medical intuitive Rachel Reamer. Yeah, it's kind of as cool as it sounds. But what the heck does a medical intuitive actually do? Yeah, we were kind of wondering the same thing. Here's the deal. Rachel provides spiritual insight to healthcare or mental health professionals on clients that want to know more about their health or that feel that they're stuck in their current health situations. And her insights often help people understand the physical, emotional, or spiritual roots that might be preventing them from discovering better health. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. She said she receives messages in the form of images, sounds, or feelings. Huh, it's pretty cool. In this episode, we dive deep into Rachel's journey, like how she discovered her gifts, how she uses them, and what it's like to be an intuitive. She also does a reading on both Allie and me, which was a little nerve-wracking, but ultimately pretty cool and intriguing about what she discovered just from looking at our pictures. We hope that you enjoyed this unique and eye-opening conversation. Before we dive in, we want to take a moment really quickly to highlight our review of the week. This week's review of the week comes from Desiree V0605. Desiree says, I've been listening to these two for a year or so now, and all I can say is thank you, Allie and Carly. You two have shined a light on many aspects of my life. Each episode resonated so deeply with my soul, I was able to begin searching for myself again. Desiree, my girl, it sounds like you've been with us since the beginning, which is so cool, and thank you so much for the love. Remember, if you haven't left us a review, you know what to do. Head on over to iTunes and tell us how this podcast has impacted your life. We would love to hear from you. Okay, 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 enough already. Let's get to the episode. Sit back, relax, and enjoy our conversation with medical intuitive Rachel Reamer. Welcome to Truth and Dare, a podcast dedicated to female empowerment through living our truth and daring to change. Hi, I'm Carly Talbot. And I'm Allie Van Fossen. All right, girls, let's kick this thing off. Rachel, oh my goodness, we're so excited you're here, especially me because I'm always just down the rabbit hole of learning and exploring things about my health. And when you wrote to us, I was so incredibly intrigued by you and what you do. And I have a lot of questions for you, and I'm, and I know both of us are really excited to have you here. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to doing this interview for a while. So very, very glad to be here. Awesome. So before we kick this baby off, can you please explain to us and explain to our listeners what exactly a medical intuitive is? Sure. So my definition of what a medical intuitive is, is that they can pick up on physical, emotional, and spiritual roots to why someone might might be experiencing um, symptoms or a specific disease. Wow. That's cool. That's cool. So when... So you're picking up on these feelings from people. I would love to know... Um, 
Is this something you always... When did it start? Yeah. (laughs) Is this something you've always had? Like, I'm so intrigued by people who can feel and see and experience other energies and have clairvoyancy and have that sort of that ability to transcend. So we'd love to know like the background of your intuitive powers. And if you want to just take us back to the beginning and share with us your journey, that would be really cool. As far as the physical, emotional, and spiritual insights that started around my late teens, um, really, really early 20s, like 2021, from a younger age, though, I was able to see and feel things, but I didn't really understand the association. Um, I would walk into um, different public arenas and different public places and be completely overwhelmed. And I didn't understand why other people thought that that was a pleasurable experience. My parents are like, hey, you want to go to a baseball game? Um, no, there's a lot of people there. Why on earth would you want to go to that? I can sit at home and watch that on TV and be just fine. Um, another uh, instance in retrospect that I've noticed is that when I was very young, I would sit and draw rainbows all the time. And to me, um, that is a major sign from little kids that they're able to tap into some gifts that they might not be aware of. So from a parent perspective, if your child sits and draws rainbows all day, every day, sit and ask them a few questions, ask them if they can see things, if they can hear things, if they can feel things, they know things. Um, just get really curious about it. Hmm. And so you're growing up, you're having these overwhelming sensations of feelings, emotions, right? But when did, so you say around like late teens, early twenties, when did you start to be able to define what you were feeling? And was there someone in particular who helped you come to that realization and like put a name to a feeling? And hopefully I would imagine like, growing up that might've felt a little bit unnerving and maybe like you were an outlier in some ways because you were so sensitive. So I, I'm wondering too, if when you were able to connect the dots, was it like a sense of relief? Like, ah, this makes sense. It was a major, yeah, it was a major sense of relief because I didn't, I think I finally came to the point of understanding why other people like going out in groups and doing things. I've always been a very, introverted person. I like to stay home. I like to have um, a few close-knit friends. I'm not someone that likes to go out on a Friday night to a bar and just talk to strangers. That's not something I particularly enjoy, but now I understand why other people enjoy that, which is, it's just a nice mental thing of, okay, this is just who I am as a person and that's okay. Um, As far as putting names to things and names to experiences, I had a um, practitioner that I saw when I was uh, sick in my late teens and she actually pointed out some of the things that I was experiencing and I was like well how do you know that I'm looking at that like no one else has commented on that and she's like I can see that too and I was like what do you mean by that and we kind of just had some open conversations with it and she's like you, you need to start playing around with it I think that might be a major contributor as to why you're not feeling good. And I said, okay, whatever. Um, More that I saw this lady, the more things she would point out that I was feeling, experiencing, seeing. And I said, fine, you know what? If you can see this too, let's play ball. Um, (laughs) I see this over here. This is an issue I'm struggling with. 
what's your perspective on this? And we would sit and talk and talk and talk. And I realized that the more that I talked to her, the more that I actually began to open up and the more things that I could see and experience. I remember one day after talking to her and coming home to my parents' house, um, my grandfather was sitting on my parents' steps. And my grandfather at that point had been dead for four years, I think. Mm. And I saw a very vivid picture of him. Like, I, I knew it was him. He wears this distinctive um, blue button-down shirt and suspenders. Um, and he also does not have one hand from a grain incident that he worked at. Um, so that's a pretty distinguishing feature if someone doesn't have a hand. Like, I, I don't know many people that only have one hand. And in the background behind him, I saw maybe, I don't know what time frame this was, but the picture was in black and white. And I, for some reason, I saw this pickup truck in the background and I knew it was red, even though the picture was in black and white. And I went inside, I said something to my my mom and I said, hey, did grandpa have like a red pickup truck? And she said, no, but my brother did that's not in any pictures in our photo albums though like where'd you get that from and I said I just saw it outside and she was like what do you what do you mean you just saw it outside and I said I just saw it outside my grandpa showed it to me so um those have been more the conversation openers too with my parents as far as discussing the different things and perceptions that I have that most people don't Oh my gosh, I seriously have chills all over my body. That is so cool. Um, Wow. So uh, I have so many questions. I guess I first want to know, you said you had that experience with your grandfather and we're talking to your mom just then about the red truck, but um, when did you decide to really have a coming out, so to speak, with your intuitive gifts and... Were you ever scared or fearful of coming off as, you know, too woo-woo or maybe crazy or maybe like nobody would believe you? If you could just share with us that process of sort of stepping into owning the gifts that you have. Sure. From the woo-woo perspective, um, that's a good common term that I hear, which it it isn't it doesn't particularly bother me anymore. It used yeah, to. I know. Yeah. Um, we hear it all the time too. Yeah. I feel like, <laughs> but anyway, go ahead, please. Um, I, I think I used to view it as this. If you go into a party and someone says, Hey, what do you do for a living? And you say something very neutral, like an administrative assistant, people are like, all right, you're, you do what you have to do kind of thing. Or you're a banker. Okay, whatever. But if you go in and you say, Hey, I'm a medical intuitive or I do something spiritual. I would imagine you guys have experienced this as well. Sometimes there might be a little hesitation depending on where you're at um, internally and how confident you are in your own self and your own abilities. Um, that I remember very struggling to be like, okay, do I just give them the very, um, the very boxed picture of it. Like, Hey, I go in and I help uh, physicians figure out what's wrong with the patient when they sit here and they've tried different treatments, different medications, and nothing's working. So I deal with these medical mystery cases. That's something that I used to tell people that I wasn't quite comfortable when I wasn't quite comfortable with my gifts. Um, That tends to be a lot more quote unquote, less offensive and people tend to handle that better then, oh, I see these different things and I decide to tell physicians or tell personal clients this so that they're able to start 
to feel better and that their physical symptoms start to go away. Um, and sometimes that might come in the form of angels. Sometimes that might come in the form of visual signs and symbols like little, I'm seeing little baby bunnies running around, something along the lines of that. That tends to be like, you need to go to a mental hospital, you have schizophrenia. A big thing that I struggled with in this journey was the schizophrenia idea because that's essentially what it looks like in the movies sometimes. You just have someone sitting on their couch and then they see all these other kind of pictures. And I feel like at one point in time, um, depending on, like if we if we go way back in time, I might be considered a witch. I might be considered schizophrenic and be put in a mental institute. That's a very um, mm-hmm. scary that process. A, it's a reality if if this if you were sharing these gifts decades ago, ago, hundreds years ago, yeah, yeah. yeah. So talk to me. I want to know. So when was the first moment where you realized that you could help people? Right. So you're seeing these visualizations, you're, you're, you're sensing things, you're feeling them in your body. But when was the first time that you started to take that gift and apply it to helping people get unstuck with their health? I don't know if it was necessarily one experience or a combination, but I used to work in the back office of a chiropractic um, center. And I remember uh, different points in times with new patients I'd be sitting there and something on my body would start hurting. So let's say I use this migraine case a lot. Um, one time a new patient was scheduled. Whenever new patients were scheduled, we just had their name and like what day they were coming in, what time. And that was it. And I'd say, Hey, like I would tell the chiropractor right next to me when she was sitting, doing notes. And I'm like, Hey, my head hurts. Like, I bet you that this new patient coming in has migraines. She's like, yeah, sure, Rachel, whatever. Just humor me. So the new patient would come in. She'd do her paperwork. Primary complaint would be a migraine. And then I remember the chiropractor coming in the back office and being like, how did you know that? My head hurt. That's what it was. And then when more new patients came in, chiropractor kind of started playing a game with me. Like, all right, Rachel, what's this other new patient got? Like, I, I don't know from a logical perspective. Um, my left knee hurts. Uh, if I had to go with something, I would guess that their primary complaint is left knee pain. New patient would come in, primary complaint was left knee pain. So it kind of became a running joke. Um, and then I would end up sitting in the adjusting room with the chiropractor. And as she was adjusting people, she would sit and like ask, like, point on the body because someone's typically face down when they're getting adjusted and she would point to an area and she would like, look at me and be like, all right, did I clear this? Is this still an issue? Are they still experiencing pain? She primarily did that with people that weren't able to speak up for themselves, like children or Alzheimer's patients, Um, specifically with Alzheimer's patients where they might say my back hurts. And then two minutes later, they forgot that they even had back pain. So mm-hmm. when I'm able to go in and sense someone else's pain like that, that may not be able to speak up for themselves, that's a huge blessing for them. Wow. That is so cool. So now talk to us about what you do now. So do you partner with physicians and also, um, if you could just kind of walk us through what is a typical meeting with you like like if someone's coming in to see you how does that really go down 
Sure. So I work with both sides of things. I partner with physicians and then I also partner with personal clients. So on the physician end, um, all they have to do is send me a first and last name with the patient's permission and a recent picture of them. And that's all the information that I need to do my job. If they want to provide me with extra information, that's great. I always appreciate that, but it's not necessarily needed to get to the point of what I do. Um, On the physician end of things, I work with the physical, emotional, and spiritual roots. So for the physical end, if a patient has stage four cancer and they've tried um, this brand of chemotherapy and this brand of supplements and this treatment and this line of juicing and whatever else, and it's not working, I can go in and say, okay, like this treatment feels neutral. This treatment feels bad. This treatment feels good. And again, that's always up for the providers on um, what they wish to share with the patients too, of Rachel found this to feel good. Um, from a clinical perspective, I could see why that makes sense. And I'm going to go with that. Other times I have physicians too, that say, you know what, from a logical human being standpoint, I understand that you might say this, but like legally I need to go with this option first, just so that we can rule out other things. So, um, that's more the physical end. Let's say someone has, I'm trying to think of the, let's say someone has chronic headaches. Normally that has to do with self-criticism. So I will figure out some emotional um, sayings and beliefs that normally have to do with their primary physical complaint that I picked up on. And then if they have any just general spiritual things too, I will also add that in there. Sometimes the patient isn't listening to their various doctors and they just need someone to sit and talk to them for a while. Sometimes the patient is not ready to move on. And that's also helpful for the physician to know. Um, even though consciously we all say we want to get better, sometimes people unconsciously like to stay sick because they're learning a lesson, whether that be I'm learning to deal with fear. I'm learning that um, if I stay sick, I get attention that I want, um, so on and so forth. On the client perspective, personal client perspective, um, I will give them emotional and spiritual insight. So let's say, again, using the headache example, someone comes to me, um, I will go off of a um, case history form that I give them. And I will go in and ask, okay, is the headache related to money, a specific person, um, love life, so on and so forth, and figure out exactly what that self-criticism is from, and then pinpoint an emotional belief that that client can go and work on, whether that be with their counselor, um, their doctor, whoever they need to go through and do that emotional work with. Mm. That is some really cool stuff you are doing. And I wonder, how are you partnering up with the physicians? I mean, are they mostly like practicing Eastern philosophy of medicine? Is it a lot of Western doctors? I mean, I feel like many doctors would be really apprehensive to your gifts and your skills and you adding to their practice. So how are you finding these doctors that are willing to work with you? A lot of it is just... um me searching and what feels good. If I come across um, one doctor and I find their information and I sit with myself for a second and say, okay, does this person feel good to work with? Does this person, um, this person vibe with me? That's normally my process. I normally shoot them an email or I send them a nice um, letter in the mail and say, hey, I really like what you stand for. Um, 
do you want to sit and talk a little bit about what I do and see if I would be a great addition to your practice and to help your patients, especially the ones that are quote unquote stuck or not getting better, or actually getting worse. Um, if you guys don't mind as well, I actually looked at your pictures on your main website and I'll, I can provide some insight to you on the emotional roots if you would like to do that for a little bit as well. Oh my Absolutely. gosh. Yes. yes. We were, I was going to get to that, but please go right ahead. Let's go for it. Okay. So as far as um, Allie goes, I'll do her first. Major emotional issue that's showing up right now that I'm picking up on is the belief of I'm scared I won't make it. And that typically stems from a money fear of um, I'm putting in so much work and nothing's working out for me the way that I want it done. Um, Nothing's going my way, something similar with that. And then the other um, major thing that I picked up on was um, something with the eyes and it happened with the birth. And that emotional belief had to do with afraid to see what I know. So Allie's a very intuitive person and she gets really good gut feelings. And when she doesn't follow those, I have a feeling that she really knows that she messed up because it typically backfires heavily. So as a per, like a example to that, it may be, hey, I'm going for a job interview and you already know in your gut. Uh, this isn't going to work. I don't want to do this, but your logical mind's like, no, we need to do this. Um, we need more finances coming in. We need more stability. Like this, this has to work. Um, that's as far as what I pick up on you, Allie, for two major um, big beliefs. Do you have any feedback as far as that goes? Oh my God, Carly, how do you feel about oh my, that? My heart is like, just like pounding <laughs> out of my body because you just nailed Allie on the head. I mean, like I'm blown away. I'm literally blown away. Carly and I just lived together for the past few months. And uh, I mean, we've been friends for a decade, but we've gotten closer than ever in the last year or two. And uh, so she knows me really well now. And what you're describing is actually exactly what I'm going through in my life in this moment. I'm going to need you to like write that down. And okay, (laughs) I can do that for you. Um, Okay. far as Carly goes, um, major, major emotional beliefs that tend to be showing up um, have to do with it's some I can't quite pinpoint who it is, but it's some kind of male figure, whether that be a significant other or a father figure, someone that feels like they're in a more quote unquote controlling role. Um, I wrote down specific ones. Um, he never listens to what I say. He slash they are ignoring me. I give up trying to change him. I can't do the things I want to as a woman. Um, Those may be conscious beliefs. Those might be unconscious beliefs. Um, Do you have any feedback regarding that, Carly? I don't know. I I don't know who who that is off the top of my head. Maybe it's something buried down inside of me. Let's see. I'm going to pull up your picture really quick here. Yeah. What about, what about your long relationship, Carl, from quite a few years ago? Some of those first things she said ring true, but then some of them I think don't as much. Yeah. I mean, maybe, but I feel so far from that now. Um, I'm picking up about four years ago. Ah, 
Is that, is that the time frame? Yeah, that would be accurate for four okay. years ago. Oh my god! Okay. So that would. This seems to be the person that we're talking about here. Then um, that might be more subconscious beliefs for you that you've pushed underneath the surface and haven't completely dealt with. Um, one common thing that I hear from people is the phrase "I've forgiven, but I won't forget." Um, the "I won't forget" part to that is just pushing those. Um, feelings underneath the surface of resentment of you treated me like crap. There's no way you should have done that. And by holding on to those beliefs, um, it's kind of like a self-protection mechanism of if I don't stand up for myself and say that that was wrong, then the subconscious twists that and makes it seem like you're more important that way compared to just forgetting. So when you have issues in the past that you look at, if you still have a charge to it and you're like, they shouldn't have done that, that pisses me off, that makes me mad, that's still something that's unconsciously bothering you. And that's something that still needs to be dealt with. I have so much shit to deal with. (laughs) Who doesn't? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely dead on with the timeline and picking up on that from my past. And it's so crazy how you think that you overcome certain people or experiences and really there's just this wall that's still inside of you, I guess. Yeah. And and just from my personal experience with it, it's annoying because it's like, oh my God, this was four years ago. Let's Bobby, let's get the show on the road. I'm done dealing with this. I got other things to do. I got other places to be. Um, mm-hmm. that's a major mm-hmm. frustration I have. This um yeah. one way that I end up pointing out um my own personal things is through journaling and just writing things out. And I'm like, I'm still holding on to this. I'm still pissed about this. This happened like eight years ago. Really, Rachel? Come right. on. No, mm-hmm. you're totally right. Wow. I'm just like, mm, so crazy. Kind of speechless. Over I here. mean, I kind of had that moment when I was at that chakra therapy training and we were talking about like, what's some, someone you're really angry at. And like all of a sudden out of nowhere, it was my first like serious boyfriend from high school. I was 14, the guy who took my virginity. And I was so fucking angry at him. And like, I got up in front of the room and talked about him. And then I journaled for like hours and then I cried. I mean, it was this whole saga that like bubbled out of nowhere. And, um, yeah, it was like really clear. I'm still holding a lot of resentment towards him and everything that transpired in the time we were together. Um, so I, I totally get the whole, like looking at a past situation and feeling that charge and knowing subconsciously we're holding on to things and it with like every event or person that we've come across in our lives. Yeah. And like, when I think about four years ago and like, I, I, you, I think that I've come all of this way, but I know that if I sit here and I really think about it, I feel that emotion coming up and I feel that anger and resentment about what happened and how things happened and what it was in my life. And no, you're totally right. I mean, we harbor all of these layers of emotions. Yeah. Allie, can I give you an example? Um, Going back to that heartbreak that you were talking about at age 14. Mm -hmm. So just by you talking about that, I'm able to go in and figure out the emotional roots of that as well. And the emotional root for that, why you're still angry is I gave my heart to you and you didn't give it back. 
that it seems to me anyway, and what I pick up, that feels to be the core of the issue. So that when you're able to sit here and really analyze that and go through that, um, that's when the true healing begins. So we can dissect that phrase a little bit. I gave my heart to you and you didn't give it back. Um, Absolutely. Explain a little I bit mean, how you felt that way. Yeah, he was the guy who took my virginity and then he rampantly cheated on me with multiple other women and treated me like a piece, like an item. Um, I mean, also I, I don't, I don't want to blame him because we were young. Like everyone in that stage of their life is just, I think, seeking approval and acceptance and love in any which way and form. But through the process, like my heart and I think my relationship with sex and intimacy got trampled all over and it got like really drug out for way too long. Like most, I think young romances and, um, and also adult romances, let's be real. So yeah, I definitely gave him my heart. He was like the first major dude in my life and he totally fucked me over. (laughs) Yep. So there's a, um, belief in there or a should, um, that if I gave my heart to someone, they should give it back. That, that mm-hmm. seems to be the underlying impression. And once you kind of come to terms with, okay, but he didn't, and there's nothing I can change about that. And that normally starts the healing process when you can analyze that certain belief system once you understand that. So I gave my heart to you, you didn't give it back. And the underlying impression with that is he should have gave it back. But instead you say, all right, but he didn't. And now I can move on. When you when you get to that point of understanding where the should is and how to take that away, okay, he should have done this, but he didn't. And then once you say that phrase, he didn't, it becomes much more relaxing. Okay, well, it just didn't happen. Like mm. I could say I could have been a famous race car driver by the age of 18. Okay, but it didn't happen. Like that's it's bringing more of a factual thing to that brain and that vicious voice, because that vicious voice likes to run on your emotions and your feelings rather than facts. So when you Mm -hmm. go in there and you say, this is just a fact of what he didn't do. Okay. That's, that's what it is. Um, So maybe we could do that with Carly as well. Let me pick a part of belief here really quick. Man, Carl, we're getting intimate here. I know. I like it. (laughs) What's new? <laughs> okay, let's do let's do this one. I can't do the things I wanted to as a woman. So as far as that relationship that happened four years ago, mm-hmm. um, beliefs associated with a woman might be stereotypical beliefs of I couldn't take care of him the way I wanted to. I couldn't cook for him the way I wanted to. I couldn't take care of the house the way I wanted to. I couldn't be um, nurturing the way I wanted to. What really resonates with that as far as I can't do the things I wanted to as a woman for him? <laughs> Uh, in relationship to him, he was, he was like one of those people and personalities that was very out there and controlling and, but in a way that it was also very magnetic to people. Like he had a big ego. He was always kind of like the alpha in the room and like would put on a show and was kind of just the man and he took control in all ways i think like in it's just so funny you said cooking because he was the cook like he loved to cook he was the host he was um yeah i mean he kind of was always putting on a show i felt like for everyone and it was a big personality t- 
to kind of compete with almost. Now I want to hear about your ideal relationship, what you would like your role to be in that. Would you like to be more of the the nurturing figure of, I would like to cook and clean. I would like to, what exactly is a woman to you in the perfect relationship in your head? Well, in the relationship I'm in now, I feel super fulfilled in my role. And I do love to cook. I do love to nurture and take care of my husband. And I, yeah, I like to take on that matronly role. Like that's where I feel the strongest and most comfortable is in that space. So you can look at that, go back and look at that belief system and that relationship and say, I wanted to have this specific role with this man of um, feeling like I could provide for him in a certain way, like he does for me. And he never gave me the opportunity to. Um, I wish that could have happened, but I understand that it didn't. And now that I understand it didn't and I moved on from it, it actually gave me a great relationship in return. So just by analyzing those things of really figuring out um, how it's suppressing you as a person, that's typically the root of all physical symptoms as far as as far as emotions are concerned is how is this not letting me be 100 percent the person that I want to be? Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. Oh man, I could do this all day. Like now let's talk about this part of my life. Let's talk about that part of my life. Can you give me? (laughs) Me too. Can we just talk all day? (laughs) It's Um, always, it's interesting though, when I have someone, if I meet a new friend or something and we start talking about what I do and they're like, well, give me an example. And I'm like, it's about to get real personal. Like, are you sure you want me to go there? So um, that's always a disclaimer I have with someone, especially if it's in public. Like if I'm meeting a new friend at a coffee shop in public and they ask me something like that, I'm like, that might be a good conversation for the car ride home. Probably not in public. Um, I remember um, with my boyfriend right now, when he started asking questions about what I did, And I ended up going in and connecting with his grandfather and giving him messages um, with his grandfather. Like that was a really emotional experience for him. And I'm glad that I did it when he wasn't around people because that's hearing from a loved one that you've lost several years ago. That's very like powerful. It's good, but you get upset at the same time. And so Rachel, you also receive messages from beyond, like you're able to communicate with people who have passed on. I, I can with um, family and friends, not necessarily people that I just met. That's something that I'm still working on. But as an example, if I'm sitting here in my apartment on any given day, my grandfather likes to pop in once in a while. Um, my boyfriend's grandfather is always in here and he's always talking my ear off. Um, he's actually sitting across from the table right now, table from me right now, like waving, like, Hey, make sure to mention me. I'm like, I just did. You're fine. Um, once in a while, each of our grandmothers will also show up. Um, they tend to be a bit more passive figures though. And they'll normally show up if there's, um, like a relationship issue or like, Hey, appreciate your partner kind of thing. The men tend to, and the men anyway, tend to be like, Hey, 
Have you gotten this done with work? Have you gotten this done with your car? Have you gotten this wow. done with your finances? How quintessential. How quintessential. Uh, yeah. Gosh, I would give anything to talk, be able to talk to my grandfather again. That's yeah. really special. Aww. So it's it's a very cool experience once I'm able to make a good connection um, with a family or friend and they're finally able to connect with their loved ones. Um it's a very, very cool experience. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. I remember getting emotional I, just thinking about that. Yeah. One time I went to a Cardinals baseball game and I was in the bathroom and I was with a bunch of um, friends that I wasn't super familiar with, but I made like a physical connection because we were all at the same table. I ended up going to the bathroom. I like come out of the bathroom ready to wash my hands. And there's this like large Italian woman in the bathroom, like, and she was holding like a giant bowl of pasta and she had like a rosary on her hand, <laughs> like counting beads. And I was like, that's weird. And I was like, who are you? And she's like, Oh, I'm D's, I'm D's grandma. And I was one of my friends name is D. And I was like, all right. Like, you know, D's Catholic, right? Like she's super Catholic. I, I don't know how well she'd handle that. And she's like, no, she's fine. And I'm like, Oh no, no. So I remember washing my hands, leaving the bathroom. I went up and told my boyfriend this. And I was like, do I mention this to a super Catholic right now? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know how she'd take it. So I think it was a few months later, I ended up telling her. And I was like, hey, saw your grandma in the bathroom one day. She just wanted to say hi, um, check in on you, make sure you were doing okay. And she actually like received it really well and really enjoyed that experience. And then um, when she became more comfortable with it, I was able to pick up on her dad and start giving her messages from her dad as well. So that, that experience meant a lot to her. Um, wow. I'm always very hesitant when I do see loved ones and I am able to connect with them, whether or not that I tell someone, because that's a very, again, that's a very emotional experience. Definitely. I want to go back. Cause you said like you're working on this skill set, and, um, right now you're doing it with friends, right. And it's easier to make yeah. that connection, but let's talk about like honing your skills. So other healthcare professionals, um, or anyone pretty much in any field, you know, you can go take continuing education courses, attend workshops. How do you stay on top of your game? How do you continue to, you know, learn more about your craft? Who are you studying with? Like, give us the 411 on how you're doing that work. Sure. Um, one major thing that I've been doing right now is finding a bunch of people with the same disease or physical symptoms. Um, celebrities are typically the easiest just because it's already released in the press. Um, one example is the is vitiligo, which is a skin condition that makes it so you lose your pigment. So a famous person that has this would be um, Winnie Harlow, who's a model, um, Michael Jackson, who ended up going from like, quote unquote, black to white, um, major, major skin changes. So just going in and looking at it and looking at a lot of celebrities with vitiligo, um, I ended up pinning, pinpointing it that it had to do with a uh, viral component and then some dysfunction in the hypothalamus. So I just like to sit here and explore different diseases and say, okay, what is my symbol associated with this disease? Um, what physical things do I pick up on with this disease? Um, what emotional beliefs do I pick up on with this disease? Um, one thing that I like to go through is I like to go through um, books with a bunch of diseases and conditions. And if I see a visual symbol pop up, I'll sit and I'll write that down. And I'll be like, all right, this is my key. Um, for example, I saw someone like a famous person with AIDS the other day on TV. And for some reason, 
I saw like a blue cancer ribbon. For whatever reason that is, that is now my symbol for AIDS. If I look at a picture, a recent picture of someone and I see that blue cancer ribbon symbol, um, I would tell a physician, hey, this is normally what I associate with this condition, or this is what I've seen for people that have been diagnosed with this condition. This may be something that you want to look into. Mm, wow. That's really, really interesting. And it's, it sounds like a, it's a good way for you to continue practicing what you do and you have access to all kinds of celebrities and people on TV or in the news. So I think that's cool. Um, I'd love to get your perspective on just, you know, us Americans as a culture, you know, we're the richest and the most progressive country in the world. And yet we have the sickest people and the highest rates of disease. And as a medical intuitive and somebody who works a lot with energy and spirituality and the roots of our physical symptoms, what's your take on this? And um, what do you think is missing from our modern healthcare? Minus the obvious of just eating better and things (laughs) of that nature. It's the culture in which we're raised in of the seven to 15 minute visit with a doctor where it's very impersonal. They don't know really anything about your personal life or who you hang out with or fears or beliefs that you struggle with. In addition to that, it's if you have this, take a pill. It's just a responsibility component. Um, I was raised of going to the doctor when I was very little. And the impression I got was if I go to the doctor, here's my problem. You fix it. Not hey, I have this um, physical thing going on. Give me a resource that I can make this feel better. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just a major mental change that I think would have huge benefits to the country if we ended up doing that. But unfortunately, a large portion of our medical model is based around money. And when you have health and money involved, sometimes money tends to be the primary winner, um, which is very unfortunate. But it's, it's hard to offer any kind of healing or soul-based service, and then also needing to make a financial gain off of it. Um, Just because you could add the belief of should people be charging for this? Um, Is this just um, acting to help my neighbor? Um, Would it be the same thing if I went over to my neighbor and gave them like a free cup of flour if they ran out, something very similar to that of I'm just helping someone else out. Or if I'm going over to my next door neighbor who's an old lady and I offer to shovel her driveway, it's just a kindness act. And is it that I just have a specific kindness act or is this actually part of healthcare? Um, And that's something that I really had to struggle through on my journey is since this is a spiritual gift, do you charge for spiritual gifts? Mm -hmm. Some people do, some people don't. Um, I, I personally decided to charge for my gifts you should. because it enables Absolutely. me to mm-hmm. live the life that I want to, and that I can do this full time rather than spending my time in a nine to five desk job where I'm not helping as many people as I could be. Right. Mm-hmm. I really like what you just said though, going back about changing the mindset of, um, like a physician or any type of doctor telling us what to do versus us taking the responsibility into our own hands. And I think that's something Carly and I are learning this huge lesson in the past few years about it's great to seek out advice. And it's especially great if you can afford to seek out um, 
you know, people who are more aligned with your beliefs around medicine. But at the same time, like there's only so many people you can go see and only so many words of wisdom you can take and only so many suggestions and practices you can start to do before you have to just decide like what is working for me and like really tap into your own, you know, innate truth. And I think that's something that is really hard for the average person who is not exposed to any of this type of talk or practice and who is completely disconnected from their body, which so many people are to think like, okay, I'm going to walk into this doctor's office. I'm going to take in their advice. And then I'm going to actually start implementing changes in my own life versus just relying on this pill or this medicine, you know? And I think we've been so trained to Mm -hmm. just treat the symptoms and like not really be like, how am I feeling? And what am, how am I not showing up to the table and like taking responsibility for my own health? And I mean, I'm not going to go on my broken tape recorder because our listeners know my story with back pain and sciatica and like physical therapy and not doing my physical therapy. And when I reflect on the past few years of being in pain, it really comes down to the fact that I haven't taken responsibility and shown up as my own healer, you know, like, and I think that's such a, like a, a moment or like a dividing thing that we have to come to terms with. If we're going to start changing the healthcare system ourselves versus relying on other people to change it for us. Right. And I think another major cultural aspect that would be lovely if it could change is just the concept of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. If you think of men in the United States, they are trained on the subconscious level not to be vulnerable. Okay, if they're never going to be vulnerable, how are they ever supposed to feel better? How are they ever supposed to ask for help? That's It's a counteracting thing. Um, And it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me as women. We're trained not to be vulnerable, especially in front of our children. We need to be a good example and make sure that mom knows that everything's going to be okay instead of just crying in front of our kids and being like, you know what? I'm scared. And to me, that's more authentic um, of just being like, you know what? I'm a normal human being and I don't have all the answers because when we're children, we have this viewpoint of our parents that they're almost God and they know mm-hmm. absolutely everything that's going on and they know all of our truths in reality instead of just having these open conversations and being like I don't know what's best for you like we can sit and talk about it and run past some ideas but in the end like you're always going to have to make your own decisions yeah you're absolutely right about that and Allie and I preach we'll preach vulnerability all the way to the highest mountain because we know that the greatest change comes when we finally let down those walls and we can just be freaking honest and truthful and just the release that comes from being open um, is really impossible to put into words. But I have a, I have a question for you that's popped up for me. Um, you talk about being able to speak to some people who have passed on and I would just love to hear your perspective on death and dying because I know that it is the greatest fear and it's also the great equalizer and it's also the great unknown for all of us. Um, So if you want to talk about that at all. Yeah, I think from my logical brain perspective, just normal human perspective, I think I still 
struggle with it, obviously, because you, you miss someone physically. You miss giving them hugs and kisses and holding their hand and going out and doing stuff with them. That's a very hard concept to let go of. I, From my perspective of the other side is that once you die, um, you have the ability to be active or inactive. And so when I say that active, um, being active, it might be I'm really upset at the way that I died. So let's say someone murdered you or something like that. From my perspective on the other side, they might be sitting here on the other side being like, that's not fair. I'm really angry at this person. This shouldn't have happened. And then the other version of active, like my grandpa and my boyfriend's grandpa is, hey, I'm just here to look out for you. If you need someone to talk to, I have an open ear. I'm more than happy to listen to you. Um, the inactive part can be when a soul goes through something traumatic or they're just tired. Um, so a, I have a, I have another spiritual friend in me. We just have open conversations. And one of her perspectives is that when someone has been traumatized um, and they go into an inactive state, they almost cocoon, cocoon themselves like a caterpillar does. Um, one example that she uses is Princess Diana, but she had such a traumatic passing and such she didn't really get to live the life that she wanted to that she's just cocooning herself right now to be like okay I'm safe I'm loved I just need time to recover kind of think of it like vacation time they're just doing whatever they need to do they're having a margarita on the beach they just they need some time away mm-hmm. um the other version of inactive is that they're just in the background they're hanging out but they're doing their own thing um in heaven whether that be bowling going to the movies, singing, whatever they want to do. They're just living their own life there and they don't really want any involvement in the physical world. Um, typically from my personal experience, when spirits want involvement in the physical world, it's because they want to help their loved ones or they see that their loved ones are struggling. Hmm. And they still have some, they feel or sense some kind of responsibility to their family still. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's comforting for us to hear that and to hear, I mean, I know some people won't believe it, but I fully completely believe everything you're saying. Yeah. I wonder, I want to ask you, um, have you read Carolyn Meese's work? I've skimmed through it a little bit. Um, normally, Right now, normally I reside a lot in Louise Hay um, mm-hmm. with the you can heal your life, the alchemy of symptoms kind of thing that tends to resonate with me right now. I do have some of her books on my bookshelf. I just haven't been compelled to open them quite yet. Yeah, I've read one of her books, but um, she didn't go into like super depth about her medical intuitive skills, but she de- definitely introduced that that's her work. And um just made me think of you, but so you're finding way more resonance with Louise Hay right now. Yeah. And I also find it interesting um, too. I had a provider make this perspective because she was working with a medical medium and she was trying to ask the question, well, why are you picking up on this thing? Well, meanwhile, this person's picking up on this thing. And I said, well, it depends on the question you asked. And I gave her this analogy. When you were a little kid and you come home to your mom after school As a little kid, your priority is to do what you want to do, whether that be eat a big bowl of cereal, play PlayStation, call your friends, um, do some arts and crafts. I don't know what kids do. That's their priority. Meanwhile, 
when mom is at home, let's say mom is a stay at home mom and she sees her kids comes in the door. Mom's priority is, all right, you're going to clean your room. You're going to scrub the bathroom. You're going to help me finish the dishes. And then we're going to go grocery shopping together. I like to view the little kid perspective as things that the individual person wants to fix. This drives me nuts compared to the mom's perspective of, all right, this is the priority that we need to deal with first. This is what comes first. Um, Because with physical things, sometimes we can have multiple problems. We can have diabetes, cancer, and back pain all at the same exact time. It be a priority. What does the body want to deal with first? What does the soul want to deal with first? Not necessarily what's the most inconvenient thing to you. And I made the point with her that I go by mom's priority, not necessarily child's priority. Because if we go by the child's priority, sometimes children don't have necessarily the long-term reasoning of what is best for them and what will further them um, in the long-term. So what would you say is the mom's priority? Is that the soul? Is it the emotional, mental? You know, what is usually the priority? Mom's priority is what the body wants to fix. And that's very individual for each and every person. Kid's priority is a symptom that the patient may be complaining about. So let's say Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. patient, um, comes in for their first viewpoint or first view, sorry, what's the word? First visit. There we go. Patient comes in for their first visit and they say, I have chronic migraines. And I go in and I look at them and I say, I totally acknowledge this, but the body wants to fix the kidneys first. So from a physical perspective, you could say, okay, um, that makes sense because the kidneys are able to filter out everything bad in our body. So if we go in and fix the kidneys, in a sense, the migraines will also go and be fixed. So I work in the perspective of if we treat the priority, typically the symptoms below that will all tend to dissipate at the same time. Rather than if I have a headache, I'm going to take a headache pill. If I have a pancreas problem, I'm going to take a pancreas pill. If I have diabetes, I'm going to take a diabetes pill. Like instead of taking pills for all these different symptoms, just treating the priority. And then once the priority is fixed, the body starts to fix itself with all the other symptoms and complaints. Right. You're getting to the root cause instead of yes. just fixing the symptoms, which is exactly what I think may be the biggest thing we're missing in Western healthcare. Yes, and sometimes that's very hard to pinpoint in Western healthcare because from Western healthcare's perspective, if you don't make the patient happy, they're going to leave. I can't imagine being a doctor and being like, I totally understand you have headaches, but we're going to work on your kidneys. And they'd be like, I came to you for headache relief. Are you dumb? Mm -hmm. Did you not hear me? Um, Again, that's just kind of the culture that we've been raised in. I have this problem. You fix it. Right. Oh, man, Rachel, we could talk to you forever. I feel like I just want to sit in front of you and have you do a reading on like every physical and emotional block (laughs) in and on my body. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Me too. I'm like scanning through my body right now. Like, what can I ask? What can I ask? But yeah, we really appreciate you showing up and sharing your gifts and also doing that really personal reading on both of us. And um, it's been such an honor and a pleasure to have you on here. Thank you for having me, guys. I had a lot of fun doing this, and I hope that I provided you with some insights that you can walk away with.
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And before we let you go, we want to ask you a question that we love to ask all of our guests on this show, which is how do you plan to continue to live your truth and dare to change? Keep doing what I'm going to keep doing. Um, I know that this is the path that I need to take and whatever obstacles are in my way, I need to figure out a way to get around them because I know that this is my calling and I would encourage everyone to be keep their personal authenticity and try and go towards their calling if they can, no matter how late in the game they are. Mm, that's something that we all need to hear all the time. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so, so much for being here and sharing your gifts. It was truly just awe-inspiring and really incredible to talk to you. Thank you, guys. All right, Tribe. How you feeling? We hope that you dug this conversation as much as we did. We truly believe that healing takes a multifaceted approach and that healers can come in all shapes, sizes, and modalities. Remember, there's nothing wrong with taking an unconventional path in your own healing. Trust your body and your heart. No one knows what you need more than you do. And also, you can be your own healer. For more information on Rachel, how to book a session with her, and for show notes about today's episode, head on over to our website, truthanddaremovement.com. We'll catch you in two weeks. Bye.